see everybody here. I'll open up with prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you that we can open up your word today. We give you praise, honor, and glory. As we look into the new Jerusalem and how this reflects your glory, we do pray, Lord, that we would live for these things, that we would be excited about our future, that we'd always remember our great promises that we have in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, it's good to be with everybody here. We're very rapidly going through the book of Revelation now. We're at the end of chapter 21 if we get through all of our material. Now, let me just mention, when we're done with chapter 21, we get to chapter 22, and once that's done, the question is, what are we going to do after? And there's a, what I want to do for a little bit, because we have Bob here, and all of you fine theologians, we're going to do a little bit of systematic theology. There was a topic that kind of came up. Bob and I read a book that was a critique of Calvinism, but ironically, he, the critique was critiquing Calvin where he was right. And uh, so what Bob and I are going to do on the doctrines of grace is we're going to show where Calvin was right and where he's wrong. So I might just title, entitle the series, Where Was Calvin Right and Where Was He Wrong? But in so doing, we're going to learn a lot about the Bible. We're going to go to the scriptures and learn a lot of systematic theology. So that'll come right after. Then after that, I don't know how many series that'll take, how long that will go, but then we're going to get into the book of Joel. We'll be teaching that verse by verse as Bob continues through the book of Acts. we got a lot of material in Acts. So with that, why is today this message about the New Jerusalem so important? I would say for two reasons. The New Jerusalem is our great promise. It's our great hope. It's what it's all about. So as we read about the New Jerusalem today, this is our heavenly home. This is going to be the home that we're going to spend eternity in along with the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. So this is the culmination of all of the promises. The second reason why we should love to learn about the New Jerusalem is because it ties together so many of the promises of the Old Testament. You're going to see today that, the, for example, the stones that were on the breastplate of the Old Testament priest really reflected the greater glory that was in the heavenly New Jerusalem. And so a lot of the book of Revelation in general ties together themes that we see in the Old Testament. So that's very exciting. So let's begin by looking at the massive size of the New Jerusalem. It's astonishing how big this city really is. Listen to what John says. Revelation 21, 15 through 16, he says, The one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its wall. The city is laid out as a square, and its length is as great as the width. And he measured the city with the rod, 1,500 miles its length and width and height are equal. Now, dear ones, notice here in the beginning of the verse, in verse 15, he says, the one who spoke with me, that's the angel. So remember this angel back in Revelation 21.9 is showing John these things. It's a vision. So John isn't being physically transported, but he's being allowed to see these things and to understand the dimensions of the New Jerusalem through this angelic mediator. Now, notice here, he also has a measuring rod. This angel is measuring this New Jerusalem with this device known as a measuring rod. And I want you to remember that there are three reasons in the Bible why the temple is measured. Number one, sometimes the temple is measured because it symbolizes God's favor returning to the people of God. Okay, we saw that in Zechariah. In fact, we'll have a passage read about that. Second, sometimes you have the temple being measured because it's a sign of judgment. But the third reason why the temple is sometimes measured is just to show you the dimensions of it. Okay, and that's what's going on here. But I want you to remember back in Revelation chapter 11, do you remember that the temple then on earth was being measured? And what it was a sign of is that God's favor had returned to the people of God. In fact, would somebody read, Eric, do you have your Bible open? Would you mind reading Zechariah 1.16? Zechariah 1.16. I just want to give you examples of these different cases where the temple is measured. Just got to find it here. Yeah, Zechariah, Zechariah what was it, 115? Uh, 116. 116. Okay, Zechariah 116. I'm almost there. Here we That's go. That's all right. And so when he reads here this, what go. you'll hear is that God's compassion returns to his people. Yeah. And in so doing, he measures out the temple 
Okay, which uh, Zechariah one sixteen. Yeah. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I will return to Jerusalem with compassion. My house will be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and a measuring line will be stretched over Jerusalem. Aha, do you see the measuring line will be stretched over Jerusalem? What's that a sign of? Well, his compassion has returned. Okay, now if you read, we won't turn to it, but like in Lamentations 2.8... A sign of God's judgment was that he measured Jerusalem as well. You see also this in 2 Samuel chapter 8, that when sometimes God measures, it's judgment, sometimes it's his favor. But here, in Revelation 21, just as it was in Ezekiel chapter 40, the measurements that are going on is simply to show us the dimensions of the city. And that's what's going on here. Um, In Ezekiel 40, the dimensions of the city were given as well. Now here, notice what are the dimensions. Notice in verse 16, it says the city is laid out as a square. Does everyone see the term square there? Tetragonos literally means a quadrangle, a four-cornered. And the reason I labor that point, that this is a four-cornered shape, this new Jerusalem, is some have conjectured, conjectured that this is perhaps a pyramid, the new Jerusalem. Well, this term, tetragonos, rules that out it's not in the shape of a pyramid it's in the shape of a cube okay that's perfectly square in fact we know also from the old testament that the holy of holies for example in solomon's temple was also a perfect cube in fact everyone if you would turn your bibles to first kings chapter six i'm going to show you that the first holy of holies is a perfect cube and again i think that that's foreshadowing the perfect cube shape of the new jerusalem first kings chapter 6 verses 19 through 20 listen to how the holy of holies is prepared it says then he prepared an inner sanctuary within the house in order to place there the ark of the covenant of yahweh verse 20 it says the inner sanctuary this is the holy of holies now was 20 cubits in length 20 cubits in width and 20 cubits in height And he overlaid it with pure gold. He also overlaid the altar with cedar. Now, interestingly, we're going to see that this new Jerusalem is perfectly cubed, just like the Holy of Holies. And we're also going to see the reference to pure gold. But on earth, pure gold still has some impurities in it. You can't get rid of them. But in the new Jerusalem, this pure gold will be absolutely amazing because there won't be any impurities in them whatsoever. Now, this isn't stated in Scripture, but both Philo and Josephus also claim that the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle was a cube, a perfect cube. Now, we don't have any biblical data to suggest that, so that's something we may want to take with a grain of salt. Philo and Josephus, though, recorded that that is indeed the case. Now, one thing I want to point out, though, is notice the massive size in red on the screen It says 1,500 miles, its length, its width, and its height. Now, I would take a slight issue here with the New American Standard Bible. It is massive. However, the term that's used in Greek is literally 12,000 stadia. Now, a stadia in the measurements of the day was 607 feet. So if you take 12,000 and you multiply that times 607, you get this. You get 7,284,000. Okay, and if you divide that by 5,280 feet, which is a statue mile, you end up with 1,380 statue miles. If you're a nautical type, remember a nautical mile is 15% longer. I always have to deal with that in aviation. It's 15% longer. A nautical mile is 6,076 feet. That would mean that the New Jerusalem is 1,198 nautical miles long, high, wide. That is a big city. So you're going to see a city that roughly stretches, if you went from the east coast to the west coast, it's roughly half the distance. And in every dimension, that is massive. And so large and so glorious is this city that it's going to provide the illumination for the entire new creation. So if you're on the new heaven or in the new heavens or the new earth and you're tromping around in your new playground, The new Jerusalem, because of God's glory shining within it, is going to provide all of its light. Can you imagine? You're going to be walking by the light of the city of God. How exciting is that? So you're not going to have to worry about putting on UV protection. 
the, uh, the sun won't be a factor. Of course, you'll be in your new bodies anyway. But how exciting is that? That is a big city. One interesting thing, too, I mentioned a while ago that when God created this new creation for us, the pinnacle of it is not a wilderness, but it's a city. Remember in Leviticus 16, where is the scapegoat led out to? The wilderness. Where does Jesus go to conquer sin and the devil for us? He goes out to the wilderness. Doesn't he? Doesn't he go out there for 40 days? And he's successful. He obeys the Heavenly Father. But you and I aren't called to the wilderness. We're called to fellowship. That's why we're not to forsake the assembling together as some are prone to do, as it says in Hebrews 10.25. We're called to fellowship, and this city is the ultimate expression of it. God has created a massive city for the people of God. Yeah, Bob. Didn't um, the Jewish understanding in the, in the Bible, the Old Testament, the wilderness was a dangerous place? Yes. Full of evil and yes. horrible things, jackals and... Yeah, right. Demons and... It was something to be overcome. Yeah, it yeah. wasn't where you wanted to be. Right. I, uh, I like to study church history. When I was in seminary, yeah. I kind of took every church history class I could while I was working my way through. Right. And the so-called desert fathers... Right. ...came to the conclusion that cities were evil. Right. Um, and they... They did not gather with other Christians. They went to go isolate themselves in the wilderness, right. thinking they'd avoid evil and find God. Yeah. Of course, we you only have limited information because they're out there by themselves. So. Yeah. But when they were found and people wrote about them, they were just tormented, demonized, yeah. in a horrible condition. But the process continued of people trying to go out in the wilderness. Yeah. One writer said eventually there were so many people fleeing the city that they kept running into each other out in the wilderness. <laughs> but there's always that false lust yeah. for isolation that some people have. Right, right. But we need to remember God ordained the church. Yeah, amen. Okay? The wilderness, the pagans think the wilderness is... Like where you get close to God. Right, right. But that's not the biblical view. Exactly. And so, as you're saying, when we get to the uh, uh, millennial kingdom and when the final eternal state, yeah. it's not the wilderness. Right. It's the city, the city of God. You know, Bob, you made an astute point years ago, and it always, it really struck me hard when you mentioned it. Um, Bob one time was mentioning that. When these desert fathers, quote unquote, they go out into the desert, into the wilderness to get away, they think they're going to become more spiritual, more like Christ. But in fact, they start sinning all the more. And when one of the things that they'll say is, well, we want to be like Christ. He went out into the wilderness. The difference that Bob cited, I think it's a great category distinction, is that when Christ goes into the wilderness, he does it for us. He goes and confronts Satan and the temptations, but he doesn't bring a sin, sinful nature that you and I have. When you and I go into the wilderness, we bring a sin nature. What sin nature did Christ have? Well, he didn't have one. He was truly God, truly man, but in perfection. So when you and I go into the wilderness, we bring this sin nature. So where does the sin come? It doesn't come from the city. It doesn't even really technically come from the wilderness. It comes from within. But the place of the wilderness is the place of temptation. Why? Because you're deprived of so many things. That's the problem. The New Jerusalem is a symbol that shows us it's, it's real. Don't think it's just symbolic. This is real. But remember, we don't have to choose between real and symbolic. It's both. But it's an ultimate and final symbol that God, God calls his people to himself. He calls us to be with one another. And that's why when we're assembling even together, think of our assembly today as a miniature foreshadowing of what life will be like in the New Jerusalem. Now, our buildings aren't that beautiful and, um, you know, we're fall, we have a fallen creation, etc., but it's still a foreshadowing of that when we come together. Every time we have the Lord's Supper, it's a foreshadowing of the marriage supper of the Lamb. So, yeah, this is very exciting. This is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. Now, any comments or questions? Yeah, Norm. Um, thinking of the New Jerusalem, it's very compact, you know, so it's pretty high density, I would say. But when you think back of the Tower of Babel and Men were trying to gather together into a city, yeah. and they were trying to do things that God didn't want them to do. 
Then he spread them out. He told people, you know, to go out. Right. And he uh, changed their languages so that they couldn't come together and do that. Right. So there's, there's a lot of differences in the nature of people and so yeah. forth from that time until the city of Jerusalem. Well said, Norm. Great segue. You know, think about this. The Tower of Babel, you're right, all of humanity gathers together to make a way into the heavens. They really want to be like God. And what's interesting is that term for Babel is Babel in Hebrew. What's very interesting is when you read Babylon, and it it occurs hundreds of times in your Old Testament, it's the same term, Babel. In other words, when you read it in Hebrew, when I read it in Hebrew for the first time, I expected a longer word, something Babylon-ish right? But it's Babel. That's Babylon. So Babylon is always linked back to the original Tower of Babel. That's what man tries to bring. And that's a great distinction. We have to realize there's a distinction between the city of man. Man ends up building Babel, Babylon, and it ends up being destroyed. But God, through his grace, is building the new Jerusalem. And so that's a distinction that we have to see. And I think it's, in, it's really intended by John himself that we see the distinction between what happens to those who live for Babylon in the world and those who live for the, the New Jerusalem. So absolutely, very, very good connection, Norm. Okay, now, moving on, we're going to look at the walls of the city here. Verses 17 through 18, it says, And he, that would be the angel, measured its walls, 72 yards according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. The material of the wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold, like clear glass. Now, notice here, when the wall is measured, more than likely, it doesn't state it, but I think it's the thickness of the wall. Now, I say that because some would conjecture, conjecture that it's the height of the wall. I don't think that that's the idea. I think it's the thickness of the wall. The thickness of the wall would be 72 yards. Now, the measurements in Greek are given in cubits. So, literally, in the Greek, it's 144 cubits, and a cubit is 18 inches. It's basically the length of a man's uh, forearm from his elbow to the tip of his fingers. So 18 inches. So if you take the 144 cubits, multiply that times 18, you get 216 feet or 72 yards. That's how thick these walls are going to be. Now, one thing, now think about that's thick, isn't it? And the question is, well, why does God need them that thick? Well, there's no reason stated. We're not going to be under threat from any enemies. Remember, where are the enemies of God at this time? They're in the, yeah, they're in hell. They're in the lake of fire. Okay? But again, God builds this majestic edifice, this huge city, as a place that you and I are going to reside that reminds us of how safe we are as well. So not only is our safety because the enemies have been completely defeated, we see the symbolism of this safety to the very nature of the structure of the new Jerusalem. Notice this phrase, when he measures it, he says it's according to human measurements. Notice it says, which are also angelic measurements. What is John saying there? I think John's point here is that even though the angel is doing the measurement and the measurement is in cubits, which is a human measurement, a cubit is a cubit. Are you with me? So it doesn't matter that the angel is using a human measurement The cubit's a cubit no matter who measures it, whether it's a human or an angel. I think that that's his whole point. So you and I can rely upon what this measurement is. And if we're correct about the length of a cubit, then we know it's 72 yards or 216 feet thick. Yeah, Brian. You say that you believe that it's the width of the wall. Yeah, thickness, And then I see in MacArthur's notes, he says the same thing, but doesn't say why he thinks that. If I say to you, I have a six-foot fence around my house, you don't think six-foot, you think six-foot high. So where where does... Let me just explain, yeah. So we just looked at, before, we looked at the distance or the the total size and shape of the the 1,380 miles that was on the previous screen. So think about a city that's 1,380 miles high, wide, long, and then you only have a, a wall that's 72 feet high. It seems fairly diminutive. So I think what's being described then is that the outer wall is, in fact, part of that 1,380 statue mile structure because having a 72-foot high, high wall against a city that's 1,380 miles high would be rather absurd. So that's what I'm saying is this, the text doesn't explicitly state it, 
but I think the context here demands that it must be the thickness of the wall, otherwise you're left with an absurdity. So that would be the reasoning process. Now, saying that, we could be wrong. Maybe we're reasoning incorrectly, and it is an outer fence that's 72 feet high, but again, the absurdity of it seems to dictate that this is the thickness of the wall. So the wall then that makes the city 1,380 miles long in every direction, you know, length, width, height, is the th- that's the thickness of that. 72 feet. Does that make sense? That's how I think, and I think MacArthur's right then on that. So, yep, very good. Now, one other thing I want to point out here, we got the 72 yards in. Notice here, though, the material of the wall was jasper. Does everyone see that? It says the material of the wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold like clear glass. Now, what's very interesting is jasper is currently an opaque color, but according to Revelation 21.11 that we studied last time, the jasper is like crystal clear material. It's beautiful. Now, that's important because remember back in Revelation chapter 4, verse 3, what was one of the descriptions of God on the throne? Well, he's described as being like jasper. And I think this tells us as to how the city is illuminated. Why do the walls look like they're jasper? Because it's the one inside is radiating his glory and his light that gives the walls their color. Notice in Revelation 4.3, it says, And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. Dear ones, we'll see as we continue our study here through the description of the New, Re- New Jerusalem that it's God's light and his glory that provides light throughout the entire New Jerusalem. So that's perhaps why the walls look like they're jasper, because God looks like that. And I want you to consider what that must look like. It's got to be absolutely glorious, this jasper stone, the brilliance of it. So that's what the city is going to look like. Now, we come to the 12 foundation stones of the city, and these are very interesting. I'll I'll read them off, and I'll kind of go through what they look like so you kind of have an idea. I won't labor the point, but I'll just read off some of the colors that these would actually be. By the way, before I read these, sometimes we look at these colors. For me, I don't always know what a jankinth is. And it reminded me, um, I'll give you an illustration. My mom and dad, they bought a car one time, and I asked my dad, I said, well, what color is your car? And it was on the phone, he's telling me, and he says, well, it's, they call it um, fire engine antelope mist. And I thought, oh, of course, I've got a clear picture. I mean, I mean, it, <laughs> of course, I know exactly what that is. Well, it was kind of a beige color. I don't know how they get, but can you imagine the police, they call, or, you know, you call them and they say, well, what color was the car? Well, they were driving in a, angelo, or a fire engine antelope miscolored car. I mean, they'd have no idea what you're talking about. But I think some of that we have here, what is jackinth and all these things unless you know i have no idea what some of these colors are so i'll describe them to you but let's read revelation 21 19 through 20 it says the foundation stones of the city wall were in, adorned with every kind of precious stone the first foundation stone was jasper the second sapphire the third chalcedony the fourth emerald the fifth sardonyx the sixth sardius the seventh chrysolite the eighth beryl the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. Now, what are these colors? Let's just go through them. Jasper is this translucent crystal green color. Very interesting as we go through all of these colors, the majority of them have some form of green, blue, or purple tint to them. In fact, eight of the twelve stones. And I'll give you a hint as to, or when we get to the end of it, I'll kind of show you why I think that may be the case. But this is a crystal green color. So think about the entire city is this radiant crystal green color. I I think of like the northern lights. Think about how grand that is when you see it. You can just sit for hours in awe of it. How much greater the new Jerusalem? How much greater the new Jerusalem and the new creation? How much more glorious than even the northern lights? Sapphire, it's this deep blue stone. Interestingly, the sapphire was something that Moses saw and the elders on Mount Sinai when they saw God high and lifted up. In fact, turn your Bibles to Exodus 24, 10 through 11. Exodus 24, 10 through 11. Here, as you turn to Exodus 24, you have the 70 elders with Moses and they're dining with him as a foreshadowing of what will occur 
in the future eschatological age. And notice what they see. It says, And they saw the God of Israel, and under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire, as clear as the sky itself. Yet he did not stretch out his hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel. Stop right there. Notice what strikes Moses as he writes Exodus 24, 11, is that God didn't stretch out his hand to harm them. Why? Because he's holy and they're not. And so here God is being gracious and merciful to them. And it says, and they, sa- they saw God and they ate and drank. You and I in the New Jerusalem are going to see God and we're going to eat and drink. We're going to have fellowship with him. And so this is all being foreshadowed in a very diminutive sense on Mount Sinai. So you see sapphire there. Chalcedony is a green silicate, a copper found near Chalcedon in Asia. Emerald is a green stone. All of us know of the Emerald City from the Wizard of Oz, right? We know all the trials that happened on the way there. Uh, Sardonyx, layered stone of red and white. Uh, It's called onyx in the ESV. Sardius is a blood red stone used for engraving. Some versions call it carnelian. Uh, Chrysolite, number seven, is golden yellow. Beryl is bluish green. Topaz is yellowish in color. Uh, Chrysoprase is greenish yellow. Jacinth is purplish blue. And amethyst is purple violet. Now, one observation that I made as I was looking at these, and don't go to the bank on this, but let me just throw out there, out of the 12 stones, eight of them have a bluish purple or green tint to them. And one of the things that's interesting to me about that is when you see the curtain that separates the Holy of Holies, for example, in Exodus 26, it's those same colors. Okay, so the colors that dominate these stones also were commanded in Exodus 26, 31 to comprise the curtain that separated the holy place from the Holy of Holies. And again, the reason I'm saying this is everything, remember according to Exodus 25, 40, that Moses constructed the tabernacle of, everything he saw was made of a pattern that God had shown him on Mount Sinai. And so what you have then, in a sense, is Moses is constructing the tabernacle and later which becomes the temple as it moves to Jerusalem under David, etc., and Solomon. When it becomes the temple, all of it's designed to reflect the greater glory that's in the heavenly Jerusalem, in the heavenly temple. Yes, Lonnie. Yeah, I, I just want to say that... Um, you know, as far as the colors of these stones, yeah. you don't want to get completely sold on what the colors are. I, I used to be a rock hound, and the main yeah. thing is the chemical composition of the mineral. Sure. That, that's the main thing. The, uh, these stones can be in various colors. I've seen them all in different colors. Like okay. E- even you folks probably saw like topaz. Yes, like uh used to be yellow, always Topaz was always thought of as yellow, and then they found a large vein of this blue topaz. You go in the jewelry store now, and you see the blue topaz. And like all of these, like jasper can be a a reddish or a greenish, or even sapphires can be various colors. And, of course, diamonds have all different shades of colors. So uh, it's mainly the chemical composition yes of the, of of the stone amen you know what's interesting is you're right and so some of it's just conjecture as as to what it will look like the one thing though we can be more dogmatic about is that these same stones are listed as being on the breastplate of the high priest and so whatever they may look like in heaven we may not know but they're the same uh they're made of the same materials uh, as the, the stones on the breastplate of the high priest. And I'll actually show you a picture of that, and so we'll, we'll look at that. Now, let me give you another possibility. And by the way, do we have an, oh, I'm sorry, question or comment? Yeah. As we're talking about colors, I, uh, this scripture came to mind yeah. and about the light. The scripture has a lot to talk about light, is yeah. light. Right. Um, Psalms eighty nine fifteen. Blessed is the people that know the joyful sound. They shall walk, O Lord, in the light of thy countenance. Wow. Amen. You know, uh, Amen. His light is, it's wonderful. What can I yeah. say? It's, yeah. He is the light. Everything, 
He's the center of everything. Amen. Wow, well said. Thank you. Yeah, you know, it's beautiful. He uh, dispels darkness. He dispels untruth. He dispels sin. And all of that will be expelled, and his light will radiate through his universe. It's newly created. Yeah, beautiful. I love that. And we are the people who we walk in a dark place, and what lights our path? The light of his word. It's a lamp unto our feet. And um, you're right, the idea of light. Um, the, remember in John 3, they love the deeds of darkness. Remember the light comes into the world, but they wouldn't, they wouldn't believe. Why? Because they love their deeds of darkness. And so, yes, it's so beautiful. You're right, this time, this theme of light is all over uh, Scripture. Repentance is, by the way, turning from darkness to what? To light. Amen. Absolutely. Amen. So that's a huge theme. Now, let me give you one other possibility. And again, I can't be dogmatic on this, but there's a book in the Midrash. Now, does everybody know what Midrash is? Midrash is a Hebrew work where it's basically a commentary on their commentaries. So think about they have a commentary on Scripture. Well, then the Midrash would be a commentary on those commentaries, okay? So the, the, the Jews love commentary. You think we love commentaries, they really love their commentaries. Well, here's one. It's called, it's a commentary in the book of, I won't give you the, it, well, it's called Bamabar Rabbah 2.7. It's a homiletic interpretation of the book of Numbers. And in this work, this Midrashic work, it claims, and again, we can't be sure because this isn't biblical, but it claims that these 12 stones also reflected the emblems that all of the 12 tribes had. Remember they had their banners? And their banners all had various colors. Well, the writer of this Midrashic work claims that the stones that were on the breastplate of the high priest that are going to be in our New Jerusalem, they didn't talk about the New Jerusalem, they talked about the stones on the breastplate of the high priest, were the colors of the banners of the 12 tribes. Okay, now, that's possible. We don't know. Again, that's not a biblical thing. But something we can know is that, indeed, the 12 stones that were on the breastplate of the high priest are identical to the colors of the 12 foundation stones. In fact, turn your Bibles, if you will, to Exodus 28, verses 17 through 20. I want to show you that this is indeed the case. Exodus 28, verses 17 through 20. Now, one of the issues as we read this, there's difficulty in translation. So if you don't see everything line up perfectly, it's because translating from Hebrew and going for even the Greek Septuagint um, is difficult, but most scholars agree that these are the same 12 stones. And notice how they're arrayed on the garment of the high priest. It says, You shall count, or excuse me, you shall mount on its four rows of stones. The first row shall be a row of ruby, topaz, and emerald. Verse 18, it says, In the second row, turquoise, sapphire, and diamond. 19, the third row of jacinth, agate, and amethyst. 20, verse 20, it says, In the fourth row, beryl, onyx, and jasper. They shall be set in gold filigree. Now, what's the purpose of the high priest's garments? Well, earlier in Exodus 28, verse 2, it told us, and I talked about this last week. He says, you shall make the holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and beauty. And that's what we are going to see reflected to its greatest extent in the new Jerusalem. It's going to be glorious. It's going to be absolutely beautiful. That's where all beauty and glory comes from. It comes from God. So we see that reflected there. Now let me show you a picture of the high priest. Now there were three priestly garments that were worn. The first garment that would have been worn by the high priest was a garment that he wore every day of the year except the Day of Atonement. And that's often referred to as the golden garments. We see this in Exodus 28.4. And it would be comprised of eight garments. It would be the ephod, the breastplate, the robe, the tunic, the turban, the belt, the crown, and the pants. But the thing I want to have you take note of, let me just pull up my pointer. I'm sorry this is blurry. I just simply want to point out, oops, if I can get my, can you see it there? Yeah. Just see this breastplate? Those 12 stones are roughly the same color, whatever they were, the same composition, as Lonnie was pointing out as the 12 foundation stones in the New Jerusalem, whatever they may look like. And again, according to Exodus 25:40, all of these things were to be made, at least in the tabernacle, but I would also surmise that everything on the priests were made after the pattern shown to Moses on the mountain to reflect the greater glory that we have 
in the New Jerusalem. Now, we also have garments that were worn by the high priest on the Day of Atonement. Those were white. And we also have uh, priestly garments. Remember, the only, you had only a high priest, but then all of the other priests would have worn garments that were white garments. They were comprised of four garments called a tunic, pants, turban, and a belt. And you can write that down. It's from Exodus 28, verses 40 through 42. Now, interestingly enough, the New Jerusalem's foundation stones are identical again to these stones on the breastplate of the high priest. And perhaps, I I can't be dogmatic, but perhaps the symbolism is, is remember the high priest in Israel's day, he alone really had the privilege of direct fellowship with God. And in a sense, now this is true of what every single believer, every single believer in Christ forevermore has direct fellowship with God. So this is not only... Not only are these things real, that is, the New Jerusalem is literally constructed of these elements, but they're also symbolic of the fact that you and I, as believers in Christ, have fellowship with our God forevermore. We really are all viewed, perhaps, as high priests in that sense. Okay, perhaps that's part of the imagery that we see there. Okay, now, the other thing I want to point out is the earthly tabernacle and temple... It foreshadowed the greater new Jerusalem. I want you to think about how even the vestments on the high priest did the same thing. So when we start thinking about that, we start realizing that everything in the old covenant and the tabernacle and the temple was really designed to show us the greater reality up above in the new Jerusalem. Yes, Eric. I just uh, don't want to interrupt you, but I just think again about 1 Corinthians, you know, now we see dimly as in a mirror, but then yes. we will see face to face. This is just, it reminds me of that. A yeah, lot. amen, yeah. It's not that what we see is false. It's just, the, and we even see, by the way, if you all you had was Genesis, uh, we, we have what's called progressive revelation from Genesis to Revelation. So we have greater revelation now than they did in the old covenant. Um, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? If those who saw the lesser glory that in the Mosaic Covenant, if they were to be punished, how much greater would the punishment be for those who've seen greater revelation, greater glory under the New Covenant? So absolutely, we should expect then that our time with God and the new creation, the new heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem are going to far exceed the revelation that we experience today. Absolutely. Yeah, very good point. Anybody else? Any comments? Yes, Adam. A long walk. Mm-hmm. You're pretty agile, though, Eric. Um, we, we stayed recently in the, the tabernacle that the instructions for the, the craftsmen and the priest in the different sections yeah. will come right before the Sabbath, just as in uh, creation. It will follow the, the very pattern of the days of creation. Oh, wow. And with the creation of man uh, coming uh, last, uh, you'll have the instructions for the uh, the priest or the craftsman, uh, yes. Bezalel and the Holyab, uh, followed by instructions on the, the Sabbath itself. And then in the garden, you also even see uh, some of these, not all of them, but you have uh, gold, uh, bdellium, onyx stone yeah. uh, in the garden. Uh, God, even some of the language for uh, covering uh, Adam yes. uh, in the garments that uh, they clo- clothe him with. Uh, and even... Uh, when he puts him in the garden to uh, to keep and work it, that's the exact same language that's used for the Levites when they were to guard the the tabernacle. Oh, beautiful! Uh, so you, you have all this imagery, and even the if you think of the cherubim yes. outside of the garden, and they can't enter in, uh, they can't go into the holy of holies. They can't go where God manifests His His Amen. presence. And so, I mean, it's just stunning. Adam, that's beautiful. I don't know if you've gotten to, but the. You were talking about the 12 stones, 12 foundations. Yes. With the 12 gates, 24 priestly divisions, kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. Yes, exactly. And so it's, yes. It's like, and there's that unity for, for all those who don't understand. All millennials want to say uh, that, that, I mean, Israel, God's done with them completely, uh, the, the earthly nation. Uh, and yeah, for a season, he's turned to the church and appointed 12 apostles. Yes. But he's going to bring them together. Uh, and so you have... Uh, I remember Kevin Bowder speaking about it, the people of God and the peoples of God, yeah, uh, where yeah. you'll have the uh, the earthly Israel uh, and, the, and the assembly of the redeemed in this age joined together 
12 foundation stones for the 12 apostles, 12 gates for the 12 tribes, uh, yes. a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, and the nations will walk in their light. It's just it it's is, stunning. It's beautiful. All the way from the beginning of Genesis. You're right, and Adam, I love the connection that you made back to the garden as well, because when we get to Genesis 22, this continues. We have access to the tree of life. And so yes, that yeah. imagery is certainly prevalent there, that what was taken away from us, remember Adam and Eve, after their sin, they're kicked out of the Garden of Eden, they're no longer given access to God. Mm -hmm. But now that's all remedied. It's all taken care of. We now have access to God, the new Jerusalem. We have access to the tree of life. And all of these things that we saw under the old covenant then were really designed to show the greater glory that will await for the people of God. So thank Amen. you. That's beautiful. God's purposes are the same all the way from the, Amen. the beginning. And Gordon Wenham, he has a article on the, the sanctuary. But uh, on some levels, he's just scratching the, the surface of what all is there. Wow. Yeah, thank you so much. We got one, another comment here. Yeah, oh, good. He said it's so interesting. So yeah. Um, scripture comes to mind in uh, Ezra. <coughs> And when the seventh month was come, and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered themselves together as one man mm. to Jerusalem. Does the Lord want his church together to be gathered as one man, Amen. in one accord, in one spirit? Amen. Amen. Wow, well said. And you're so right. And Bob's going to be getting into Ephesians 2, verse 15. Is it verse 15 today? Uh, where no. he makes the the two men one, one yeah the one new man just as you guys are saying um the the gentiles and the israelites are brought together through the work of christ and we become one man as it were absolutely like a pu they fit like a puzzle absolutely it's, uh, there's no gaps uh, part of the part of the thing that um the lord has shown me <clears throat> is that there, why are there so many denominations? Why yeah. is everyone, they're not in one, one spirit. They're not in one accord. Why? Yeah. 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 yeah well, well said. Um, I'm sorry. I don't know your name. I, My name is Vance. Vance. Thank you so much. Yes, you know, one thing I'd point out too, you know, human, the human condition still being sinners, this side of glory, men make mistakes. And that's one of the reasons why we've rejected creedalism here at Gospel of Grace is because at the end of the day, the ultimate authority is God's scripture. Yes. And so just because someone claims something in the 15th or 16th century doesn't mean that it's inerrant. What's inerrant is found in the word of God. Yes. And uh, that's one of the problems with the denominationalism is I've often seen good theologians go to the mat for something I think, I, I can't tell their motives, but uh, let's take amillennialism. Amillennialism, here you have in scripture, it says they shall, they shall live, zao, come to life and they shall reign with christ for a thousand years how does how do people get there's not going to be a millennium there's going to be no reign of for a thousand years from that and what you see is people end up getting tied to their denominational creedalism rather than saying you know what i want to understand what the scriptures have said and so i think that that's one of the things that um keeps people from the truth and um yeah it's, it's very sad now saying that there are a lot of people of course in every denomination that are lovers of the truth and uh, and so we're glad of that. But, yeah, you're right. It's, it's sad that we don't have the unity. But one day in glory, this is exactly, it'll all be remedied. So very, very good point, fans. Anybody else before we move on? I and mean, I'm sorry this is so blurry, but you guys, I think, get the major point there. On the, it, yeah, This yeah. is not boring at all. This is fabulous. Uh, I just, at the risk of belaboring this a little bit, is it's, um, you know, we will have Jesus Christ to lead us infallibly. And so right now, this is what you're saying, and, you know, to, yeah. to the point uh, of, of our friend here, Vance, yes. is it? Yeah. Um, you know, we've got all of, all of these denominations, and all of, we're all sinful human beings still, even though we're redeemed. Yeah. So we just get it wrong so often. Well <laughs> there will said. be a day when it will be, it will be gotten correctly, and that yeah. will be, Jesus Christ will lead us personally, and, and we really need that. <laughs> Yeah, we sure do. Amen. Yeah, and I'm sorry, I didn't mean to say blurry. It's blurry. I don't know how to get that tightened up. But anyway, I think everyone sees the, uh, even though it's blurry, you see the connection to the 12 stones and the vestment of the high priest. Okay, so with that, we see that God, we're gonna, it's going to be our temple, God himself. Revelation 21, verses 21 through 22. John continues, he says, And the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each one of the 12 gates was a single pearl. 
and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. Verse 22, it says, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. Now, notice here, as uh, Adam was pointing out, we have 12 gates, our 12 pearls. So think of all the multiples of 12. We have 12 foundation stones. We had 12 gates. We have 12 of uh, the apostles. We had a mention of the 12 tribes. And so this idea of 12 and the idea of this royal priesthood that every single person is, we see this in the epistles that Peter writes. We see the idea that we are all priests of God and that we are the very temple of God throughout the New Testament. This is going to find its fruition and fulfillment in the New Jerusalem. I love the makeup here of these gates. Think about pearls. In antiquity, a pearl was of extreme value. In fact, Jesus talks about the value of pearls. By the way, for them to get pearls, some think that they had to go as far as the Atlantic Ocean to get them. Now, um, others have said, well, that wasn't true. Pearls could be found elsewhere. But it was very difficult to find pearls um, in those days. And that's why they were so rare. Uh, Matthew 13, Jesus says in verses 45 through 46, he says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now, I'm just pointing that out to show you the value of pearls was exceedingly high. And so for John to say that here you have the pearly gates, that's where we get the, the phrase from, the gates are going to be made of pearl, shows you the extraordinary beauty that awaits us in the new Jerusalem. Notice here, the city, the streets were made of pure gold. And by the way, the term street here, platia, in Greek, it's a singular. It's preceded by the definite article. So literally, it is the city street or the street. And um, what's interesting, platia literally means to be broad. Okay, so sometimes people think of the many streets But I think here what's being referred to her perhaps is the kind of the city square. So the city square, every city in antiquity kind of had a square. And perhaps that's the city street that's being referred to is kind of the uh, what you would call the main thoroughfare of the city. Um, All ancient cities had that. And so perhaps that's what's being described here as being made of pure gold. But notice the pure gold here is so beautiful that it's clear. Does everyone see that it's like transparent glass? Why? Because there's no impurity. Just as there will be no immorality or impurity morally that enters into the New Jerusalem, that's reflected in the very structure itself. It's pure in every way. Now, does anybody have any comments on that? Yeah, Adam. Sorry, we're giving Eric his workout. <laughs> Stay awake. <laughs> Um, I I believe when Moses and the elders uh, and Aaron and and his sons, uh, Nadav and uh, Abihu, uh, go before the Lord to eat on Mount Sinai, they see under his feet uh, as as if like a sea of glass. uh, Yeah, we were just talking about that. It's that that heavenly uh, imagery of God exalted, enthroned in uh, heaven, but he manifests his presence then on the Absolutely. Yeah, when the elders, they got to dine with God, and Moses marvels that he doesn't stretch out his hand against them, that they live. And, uh, yeah, you're right, it's all a foreshadowing of this, that we will live with our God and see this beauty. So, yeah, it's being foreshadowed at Mount Sinai. And there they they dare not uh, approach the the mountain. Uh, Only Moses could go up, and he saw after the pattern. And I know you can read, like, the author of Hebrews when he talks about according to the pattern. At first, I remember, like, reading that in the past, I was kind of like, I, I just assumed it was kind of like a blueprint or something, you know, sure. like architectural plans or something right. like that. But uh, no, he wasn't joking. I mean, it's right there in, in Exodus uh, that right? he saw this heavenly pattern. He, wow. he saw this uh, imagery and uh, it's kind of like the visions of Isaiah and at the beginning of Isaiah 6, uh, the beginning of Jeremiah and the beginning of Ezekiel. Yeah. They each have a heavenly vision of God enthroned. Amen. Yeah, it's so well said, and that's, this is why Abraham looks for a city whose foundation is from God, and uh, it, it is, it's so beautiful. That's the, by the way, in Hebrews 11, that's why he perseveres in the faith. Why? Because he's looking for that city, and this is a city that was being foreshadowed all the way back to, uh, back in Sinai. 
when Moses sees the pattern shown to him on the mountain, as it says in Acts, Exodus 25, 40. Yes. I was just ahead. thinking how you talked about this broad street. Um, yeah. And, you know, salvation talks about we go, it's the narrow path. It's kind of mm. like going through the turnstile yeah. and how you squish through. Yeah. And then suddenly you're into this broad area. It's just yeah, like. Beautiful. Yeah. Now, to be fair, I, th- this term is often used. The platea is used as street in the New Testament. But the technical term, hodos, is another term, for example, for road or way. But platea has the idea of broad. And the only reason I say this is we often talk about the city streets of gold, plural. And this is a singular. So I'm just trying to say there's, there's more than one way of understanding this. It could be m- multiple streets. It's just inferred that the street, a representative street, is made of gold. Or it could be referring to the town square, the city square. I, I just can't tell you to be dogmatic, but um, I'm just telling you, if he could have used plural for many roads or many paths, but that's not what he used. And so I'm just, um, again, so don't read too much into that. It could be just a representative street, and they really are all made of gold. And it wouldn't surprise me if they were. So I just want you to be aware. I'm just trying to point out that nuance because I'm not exactly sure how to render that if it's multiple streets or singular like a plaza. Um, Adam, any thoughts on that? No, I think you're probably right. I'd have to look at it a little more. Okay. But, uh, you, you have a main thoroughfare. Yeah. A city. Yep. So anyway, yeah, I'm sorry. He, he answered it, yeah. <laughs> that was to give you more exercise here. <laughs> Poor guy. Now, notice here in red, this is very significant. He says, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are the temple. Now, here the term temple, naos, is the inner sanctuary. So now... God is the temple for humanity. Where is the temple of God? It's, well, where, it's where God is. So think about it right now. In the, the, the Holy Spirit is within us. We are the temple of God. In fact, Paul says as much in 1 Corinthians three sixteen through 17. He says, do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy and that is what you are. So right now, through faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit dwells within us. We really have communion with God. But we still, in this body, in this age, are pressed in from every side. We still have to fight against the unregenerate world in the sense that we're proclaiming the gospel to them, but we're under tribulation. All of this is going to be reversed when we get to the new Jerusalem. You and I will have access to God And we will be with him no longer under tribulation. Remember the great promise. Those who put you in tribulation, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, he says it's only right for God to put them in tribulation. The term philipsis, literally, he will afflict those who afflict you. So you and I will now have access to God. We will be his temple, but no longer under affliction. Let me give you a little thought about the history of the temple. Think about in Ezekiel chapter 10, when God's glory, his dwelling presence, left the temple. Why? Because of the sin of Israel, the sin of the people. So remember, Yahweh's glory leaves to the east, and it basically goes up from where? From Mount of Olives. So Jesus comes on the scene of history, and it says in John 1.14 that he is the very glory of God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, it says, and he, we saw his glory Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. By the way, this is an allusion back to Exodus, where Yahweh was full of grace and truth on Mount Sinai. So Jesus is the very glory of God, and he goes into their temple. He teaches in the temple, but they reject him so much so that Jesus says in Matthew 23 that they will not see him again until they say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, a quotation from Psalm 118. So where does he go? The glory of Yahweh departs again to the east. And interestingly enough, his ascension goes the same way. It goes up from the Mount of Olives. So when he returns to set up his kingdom, where does he set his feet? On the Mount of Olives. Remember in Acts 1, the angel says, Men of Galilee, why do you get skyward? This same Jesus coming back in like manner. So Jesus in the millennial kingdom is going to set up a real temple that we read about in Ezekiel chapter 40 through 48. And he's going to reign with his people, and that'll be the headquarters of his kingdom, will be this temple that the Messiah dwells in from Jerusalem. But then there's going to be a final rebellion, one more. Even though the world is covered with the peace of God, 
The swords are beating the plowshares, the spears into pruning hooks. The nation shall learn war no more. There's one final rebellion at the end of the thousand years. And God crushes that. And then he brings us to the new Jerusalem. And he himself will be our temple. So that's kind of how this goes. So all of the previous temples are a foreshadowing of God himself being our temple. And that you and I will really dwell one day securely no longer under threat from any enemies with God forevermore in the new Jerusalem. So how beautiful is that? God himself is our temple. Now, any comments or thoughts, questions, show ideas? Yes, Adam. Sorry, Eric, you might as well just stand over there. (laughs) We'll have to assign Adam a different seat. (laughs) I'll just just briefly comment. You mentioned that, that east. Uh, the garden was to the east. Oh, yes. Um, and there, with, like with the Holy of Holies, uh, so that was the westernmost part. And then yes. you had the holy place uh, and then the courtyard. Uh, and with the garden, you'll see that the man, the woman, uh, that there's the, they're banished out of the garden to the east. To the east. And that's where the, the cherubim are. Yes. Uh, kind of like in the Holy of Holies. Holy of Holies, exactly. Uh, they, can't, they can't enter back in. And then Cain, when he kills Abel, uh, he's sent away from the, like the fertile land, and he wanders, and he's sent to the east. Wow! Uh, and the you, you'll even see with with uh, Babel that they go and they make it in the east. East. And yes. so there's this eastern eastern orientation going further and further away from God's presence. And Cain even says uh, yeah. that he, he'll now have to go away from his presence, and anyone who finds him will kill him because right, he, right. he assumes he won't have God's uh, protection. Adam, when you look at the profundity of Scripture, why do people deny? You know, isn't it interesting? If you really look at it, it's ignorance, isn't it? And even the the river, the river flowing out and then breaking into four rivers. In Ezekiel, you have this river that flows from the the temple temple. to the east, uh, to the Jordan and north and south and to the the Dead Sea. It makes the Dead Sea live. Or the the great, the Salt Sea. Uh, And it... Suddenly, it's filled with fish and creatures, and they're fishermen. Uh, yes. Bob probably likes that one. Uh, on the, you know, on yeah. the side, and the trees uh, growing, and it's yeah. fertile. Um, and Adam, so there's this this eastern orientation. Adam, that was one of the evidences I gave of the millennial kingdom, and here's why: the amillennialist will say that you go. So think about the new creation that has no no sea in it, according to Revelation twenty one one. So, how do they understand that passage? is an amillennialist because right now the Dead Sea doesn't produce life. In the new creation, remember the amillennialist doesn't have a thousand-year reign. They just go right into the millennial kingdom. Well, in the millennial kingdom, there's going to be no more, or I'm sorry, in the eternal states, there's no more sea. So you go from now where you have the Dead Sea producing no life to the eternal states where there's no sea. But in that, that passage out of Ezekiel, I think it's chapter 47, it talks about the Dead Sea bringing forth life. The millennial kingdom really makes a, a time does, period for Does it use the, the singular there? Because it, it might refer to sort of the, uh, the great sea uh, to the west and around all the, the it continents. It does, but you know what's funny? In that passage, it refers to both. Mm-hmm. And it makes a very clear case to the Arabah mm-hmm. and the places that flow from the Jordan down. It really makes an explicit case that it's the Dead Sea itself that, that will live. And the great sea, it distinguishes the great sea in the Mediterranean. So, Oh, I just meant in Revelation when it says oh, there will yeah. be no, uh, no sea. I'm just wondering if that's the... There, there may still be bodies of water, uh, if not we the, talked the about main that. one that surrounds yeah. the continents. Yeah, and I would, you know what, I, I have to be honest with you, I love lakes. I'm a lake kind of guy. So every now and then I sit at my lake, I'm like, wow, I'd like to see more of this. But yeah. we have to affirm that whatever God does is going to be for the, our best. Although uh, sometimes the Jews had problems even with their uh, smaller bodies of water. Yeah, exactly. So. And, you know, one thing that's interesting about the sea, and we talked about this back then, it's not that the sea in and of itself was sinful, But in the new creation, it seemed to be at variance with what God was doing. Why? Because it created separation. What's interesting is many of the nations are separated because of the sea. You had people had to fight to survive because of the sea. Well, all of that which is at variance, it's not evil, but it's at variance with the perfection of God's new creation. That was the argument that I would make for perhaps why Sometimes it's used positively, you know, for God's blessing. But it's also interesting that the beast emerges from the sea. Sea, And you have all these pagan myths where their their, uh, gods emerge from the sea. Uh, They they are the sea. Uh, But here, they're just creatures. They're they're created things. They're not God. Right. Amen. Well said. 
Well, I'll tell you what, we're out of time. Anybody else have any thoughts? We'll continue the description. We're almost done. Um, yes, Ryan's got something. We've got time. A second here. So we're going to just continue the description of the New Jerusalem, and then we get into Revelation 22, and we'll talk about the return to Eden, as that's described uh, next time. Yeah. I just thought it was kind of interesting that it's the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb that yes. are its temple, kind of putting Christ and the Lord on the same page. Amen. Both the God, God the Father and the Son are depicted as the temple. Yeah. Very, very good. Yeah, very beautiful. The Lamb who was slain is our temple. Uh, that's how he's described, yes. Levon. We were talking about the east. Yeah. Well, then I thought about when Christ was born, the wise men came from the east. Yeah. So kind of, does that represent like reconciliation through Christ? Where, hmm. I, I don't, don't know. know. I don't know. I, it's a very good thought. Very good reading. You get free coffee for that. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good connection. I don't know. It's very good. Well, I'll tell you what, one thing I, I do know is that the reason why God put the new creation, the new heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem here, is so that you and I would understand what we have ahead of us, that we have something to look forward to, because this world is bleak, and it's designed to make us be those who forsake the sin that so easily entangles us here and now. We're to live for the new Jerusalem, the new heavens, the new earth, the new creation. That's what we're to live for. So let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you that you've given us the dimensions of your city and so much of what it's comprised of so that we know that these things are real, that we aren't just going to be floating around on a, a, a cloud strumming a harp, but we have a place to go. Uh, we thank you, Lord, that you've given us these things so that we may know our eternal hope and reward. I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to persevere in the days to come, that we'd be about your gospel that we would be bold in proclaiming it so that others may have eternal life. We also pray, Lord, that you'd help us forsake sin uh, here and now and to live for this glorious kingdom to come. We pray that you would do that for us and through us. In Jesus' name, amen.